His name is Heston Blumenthal. He is one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet, with a knowledge of food quite unlike anyone else. And now he's taking us all on an adventure with him deep inside our food to reveal the amazing hidden secrets inside our simplest, most common ingredients and hopefully change how we view cooking and eating forever. Hello, Heston. Good to see Hello, you. Hello, Jay. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. Another big intro. Apologies, I should have had some sort of uh, trumpets playing and things. Could you make it a bit bigger, please? Trumpets. Yeah, do, you remember, so. <laughs> we, do you remember when we filmed the uh, the beef show I for do. Uh, was it Fantastical Foods or yes. Feasts? Fantastical Foods, and we filmed in a castle in Wales, and we had trumpets. Oh, did we? we had tr- I forgot. We, <laughs> you remember those the trumpets on the on the ramparts of the castle? I've always wanted that. We should get them I, back. I want them every time we start we start a podcast. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do a sound effect. I'll put a sound effect on now okay. uh, <laughs> with some trumpets to introduce you. And and as a nice bonus today, uh, Fat Duck producer James has actually got a microphone which to turn up for the books. Hopefully, hello James, can you hear us? Hello, nice to see you, gents. Yeah, so James is going to be furnishing us with all the facts that Heston's written down in the. Various books that he's surrounded with now. It just all the facts that I've forgotten. Yeah, basically that's what luckily they're all recorded. <laughs> Plus more and 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 purchase. Can I just point out they're all available to buy online at Amazon <laughs> and other. <laughs> so Heston, the idea is obviously in each of these podcasts, you are going to take us deep inside a single ingredient, sort of uh, you know micro level, dive into it and explain and share all your knowledge on it. So where are we going today? Oh, everywhere and everywhere from. Historical Britain to outer space. Ooh. From the inside of a cow. Yes. I was going to say to the inside of our bellies, but I hadn't thought about talking about that. So from the, from the inside of a cow to the inside of the beef while it ages and while it cooks. Beef, I'm guessing then. Yes. A more British ingredient, I can't imagine. It is, yeah, it I, think, is... I think it, it got pushed off number one spot for iconic British dish by curry. But it's 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 in been in the top two for years. Roast beef, ye old roast beef of England. And in fact, beef I mean the history of beef, you know before Queen Victoria, our Christmas lunch stroke dinner was roast beef, not turkeys. Was it really? We, yeah, it was well, after she married Albert from Bavaria, we then he then introduced Christmas trees and turkey. Before I then, no it was it, it was roast beef for Christmas. That'd be nice, you know. Oh, I'd like roast beef oh, for Christmas. You can smell it. You know when you roast it, that it's like going for a walk. You go for a walk and maybe going to go to the pub for a pint while the beef is roasting in the oven. You come back and that oh. wonderful smell. I know. Any apologies to any vegetarians and vegans listening. Although, although I do believe. Uh, we eat way too much beef. I think that it's very important to, you know, the way that, that animal husbandry, the good news for, for, for chefs is, is with animal husbandry, the more humane the animal's been treated, the more love it's been given, the more space it's been given, the better f- the food it's been given, the more instant it's, been, it's, it's slaughtered, and then you've got the, the aging afterwards, the humanity side of it goes hand in hand with the quality. You treat an animal badly, you don't only you know, pay the penalty of actually being cruel to an animal, but in fact, you end up with the penalty of having a tough piece of meat. So the two things go hand in hand. So How's that then? How does that work? Stress. Stress, okay. It's so the same as human beings. When you're stressed, you're tense. 
you don't breathe the same and it's so delicate even washing a cow with a with a cold hose cold water before slaughter you'll get tough meat if the cow gets transported this is why why um you know when 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 we got rid of slaughterhouses post um post mad cow disease the cows had to be shoved cooped up in lorries to be taken to the bigger slaughterhouses and then that also helped lead to foot and mouth because you sp they spread all sorts of disease, not just cows, but that the foot and mouth was in sheep. So you cram animals up in small spaces. They're not designed to be put into small sp spaces. They mm. have feelings. They have emotions and feelings. And you know our venison farmer in um, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, he as a, they're all wild venison, and he fought for years, and he he succeeded in getting the venison to because they 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 live in pairs. So bring them in. The slaughterhouse was on the estate. So they trot in. He had a green fence. There's a woman called Temple Temple Grandy, or Temple Grand. He's done some incredible work on the process of before and getting animals to slaughter, having a nursery for them before, have them relaxed. And and this this venison farm, we watched. The only way we I've done this with all the meat. We don't have much meat in the fat dark actually, but. Um, Go to the farm and see a farmer with his animals and go and see how they're slaughtered. We have to see. Otherwise, you know, there's no transparency. I think I think eating meat and and, and brushing under the carpet where it comes from, for me I'm I'm not I'm that's something I couldn't I couldn't do. So these animals trotted in from outside. There's a green, very smart green wooden sort of corridor. Starts off wide and goes narrower and they get to the end and then above there's somebody with a stun gun. Two at the time, boom. So they don't. There's not. They don't see anything coming. You can see it. And when you're that coming back to stress, if you're stressed, you know what happens. You get to build up a lactic acid. So if you go to the gym and you haven't been for a long time and you try and push yourself too hard and then you get that, oh, you know, your, well, your muscles really hurt. That's because you've got a build up of lactic acid and you haven't been able to to flush it out. And that affects the pH of the meat. Uh, heavily affects the way that it tenderizes through the post-slaughter process, the aging process. Is there a way? So the, is there any way you can tell this once it's been slaughtered? As a, as a yeah, as measure. A you measure the pH. You measure the pH. But you need to put your trust in a in a good butcher, or know the transparency from the from if you're going to buy from supermarkets and just be transparent. It does cost more money because it costs. We I I believe that we should eat. We should, for me, I'm not, this is not judgmental. I, I eat less meat now, but when yeah. I do eat it, I want to value it more. Um, so it's a very complex process, but going back to the history of beef, you can trace beef back centuries and centuries. As I said, we used to eat it for Christmas and it was always considered something very special. And this is before, you know, mass farming that we have today. So in 1685, the coronation of James II in the Great Hall in Westminster Abbey was served the biggest banquet ever recorded in Britain. It was something like 172 or 178 courses. <laughs> but Sounds if you look up. at the, you look at the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you look at the courses, one dessert was 32 different desserts. Another course, I think, was puffin, 
served <laughs> 10 different ways. So that if you add them all up, I mean, I don't know, it was 250 or 300 courses. And the Queen was anorexic, apparently. <laughs> so she was. She, she would be after that. Probably a horror movie for her. And at the, one of the centerpieces was Beef Royale. Ooh. which we turned into a dish. And it was, it was basically beef where you cut out holes in the beef and you stuffed it with white truffles, black truffles, sweetbreads, anchovy, just about all the most expensive ingredients you can think of and then cook it. So we, we, we then turned that into a dish in the duck and it's in the Fat Duck cookbook actually, Beef Royale. So that, that, you know, that, it, it, it took centre stage for, that, for the biggest dinner ever served or the biggest lunch stroke dinner ever served in Britain. Then you move on to its importance in, in, um, in the military and on the Navy and in the, in the services and the forces. And in particular on ships, um, Battle of Trafalgar, 1800, just um, 1805, I think. What um, they did, obviously, they had to cajole a lot of people <laughs> to get on a boat and go to war. So they did it several ways. They either just beat them up until they were unconscious and they woke up on a ship. They got them drunk and coerced them into getting onto the ship. Another way was to offer them significant amounts of beef and beer. Because water was scarce, it was easier to take beer on boats. So what happens, uh, what they did was say, if you come onto this, come onto the ship, come and join the Navy, go, go into battle and eat something like half a kilo of beef a day and several, pint, several pints of beer. Okay, all right, I'll come on. I'm surprised. So, That's amazing. So it, it I didn't realise that. It was used to entice people to join join the forces. It was it you know, it was that it was that valuable. And you know, going back into the late seventeen, mid seventeen hundreds when the general public you know, they'd be eat, they'd be eating lots of things like oats and, and gruel and barley and you know, stuff that was very cheap. Beef was very, very expensive and very valuable. From the late 1700s to the mid-1800s, all the palaces in Britain, the head chefs were British. This was the Georgian period, and this was the last great period of British cooking until what we've, what we've got today, because we're in a great period of British cooking. So that was when all the, the chefs at the palaces were, were British, and they had you know, armies of, 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 of staff in the kitchen and, and, um, and for service. They... Uh, were became experts at roasting meat over a fire. So turning on a spit, and there was a difference between roasting and smoking. If you cooked your meat on a spit over an open flame or a fire, and it was tasted smoked, you messed it up. If you smoked your meat, you smoked it. If you roasted it, it was how to harness the heat. So by turning on a spit, what you're doing is imagine your piece of meat as it comes closer to the fire it gets hotter as it moves away from the fire it gets colder so you're heating up cooling down heating up cooling down they'd catch what juices would come and they'd use those in to make a to make a, a gravy uh i pity the poor person that 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 was responsible for for this because the heat on these fireplaces weren't little they were they were huge so you just have to sit and turn there was, I don't know if this is true, but there was, there were stories of dogs being used to, you know, to running on a hamster wheel to turn it. Um, but I do know what was true is that watchmakers at the time that would make uh, grandfather clocks, for example, tick-tock clocks with a, with a sort of chain mechanism, they made spits. So you would put a weight on the end of a, of a, of a cord or a chain. And let's say a one kilogram weight took one hour to fall down, huh. so it starts up at high up, and it, it, then gradually, as it moves down, 
the spit is turning, then a t two kilo weight would take half an hour. So the amount of weight you put on the end would determine how long the, the roast, the spit would turn, and they'd have, even have a little alarm bell 10 minutes before the end. So us Brits became the world experts in roasting meat, and in particular beef, over an open flame. And the French, I love this sitting here in France, being a, being a, being a, being a British chef, which is a bit of an oxymoron in, in, in a lot of French people's eyes. Yeah. The, Fre the French called us les roast beef, because we taught them, they sent their chefs from the chateaus here to the palaces in England to learn how to cook meat over an open fire. And people think that we were called les roast beef because they took the mick out of us loving roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. But no, it's because we were the experts. And I remember, I loved this, Jack Chirac, a G7 summit meeting in Glen Eagles, several years ago now, said, Britain has the worst food in Europe, second only to Finland. Ooh. Now. I t I, yeah, I t one of the Channel 4, Channel 5 news came to Bray and I did a, I did a, a they interviewed me. I, was, I took offence to that. And this is a man that doesn't even drink wine with his food. Now, I don't mean, if, he don't, if you don't drink alcohol, you don't drink alcohol, but he, he just drank, you, to go and have a tasting menu with beer, and I don't mean a beer and, and, and food pairing, because that, you know, that's very different. Now. It was just like bottles of Heineken, whereas the, all the others, they, were, they went to a two Michelin-style restaurant um, it, the, the G7 summit meeting before. I know because my old maitre d' served him. <laughs> and he hadn't been to England. It was really ignorant. So that's no offence to Finnish people, by the way. However, <laughs> t two weeks after he said that comment, London and Paris were fighting it out for the Olympics. And the two Finnish representatives withdrew their votes from Paris and gave them to London. Well, because of that? It, well, I then... I had lunch a couple of years ago with, with Seb Coe, Lord Coe, and a couple of other friends. And we're there, and I said, look, I said, Sebastian, I've been saying this for a while now, but is it true? He said, yes. He said, it was the last straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't just that, but it was the last straw. There was, they had lots of problems, and in the end, he made that comment, Britain has the worst food in Europe, second only to Finland. So they, 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 gave, they gave, we got the Olympics because of our cooking. <laughs> I love us, it. Us roast beefs. Viva la roast beef. That is, that is brilliant. Okay, so there's a, I, bit of a, a, there's a bit of a history of, history of beef in Britain. I think that's a wonderful history. Right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a little pause here. The reason that we can do this podcast and give it away for free is we're, we're supported by a brilliant uh, thing that we, all three of us, uh, really like called The Great Courses. There is, it's, it's basically an online thing with an app as well, which is created for the lifelong learner in all of us. It's a streaming service and it provides access to thousands of fascinating fact-based fact lectures across almost any topic imaginable. And there's loads of food content on there as well, real from a scientific perspective, um, and everything is is taught by world-leading professors and experts and there's things like the everyday everyday guide to wine boosting your emotional intelligence uh, how to you can even learn how to do watercolor paintings uh, or play the piano through the app and Aston, i know it's something that you're into isn't it i've been I'm, i was i was so chuffed when i found out they were sponsoring this i've been a big fan for a few years now as you said everything from history to photography from quantum physics to cooking from music to art and story writing it, basically anything and everything you can think about they've managed to get the least some of the leading experts in the world on the on the subject you might have 30 episodes if you've got a thirst for knowledge and to get in bed into a subject, I can't think of uh, anything, 
anything more in-depth, more reliable, better suited to this type of learning than, than the great courses. And that's the reason we wanted to tell you all about it. Um, basically, there's a great offer we've got here, which is if you sign up for The Great Courses Plus, uh, for a limited time, they're offering all our listeners a free month of access to the entire library, which is which is really cool. So um, to start your free trial, you've got to sign up today using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Heston. So uh, don't wait, go for it. The Great Courses plus.com slash Heston. One more time. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Heston. Sign up and learn some more cool stuff, uh, much like Heston's going to tell you now all about beef. Back to the beef. Back to La Roast beef, Heston. Talk me. Talk to me about your personal journey with beef. Well, my, I mean, my, my personal relationship with beef is from Sunday roasts as a, as a, as a, as a kid. I, when I had my own kids and they started growing older, we moved to chicken because uh, one of my daughters didn't eat beef and the other one didn't eat pork or lamb and so chicken was the, was was the was the safe bet but every now every now and then to have roast beef yorkshire pudding roast potatoes it's sunday lunch talk about talk about a dish that that that, that can root you in time and place i i love it so it's it's it started from there then when i uh, probably 1985 was one of the big turning points in my, when I say my career, it was before I was a professional chef. I mean, 1985, I was, what, 21? I bought Harold McGee's book on food and cooking, The Science and Law of the Kitchen. It was, that was within a year or the year it came out. And a lot of it was, at the time, quite technical for me to go through. But, I was, it, it, but the great thing about that book is, Harold's book, is you can look at the index. You go to look for something and you get completely distracted. Oh, profiteroles. You know, and he talks about the, <laughs> the, science, yeah, the science of cooking as opposed to food science. So food science, you go to university, you might do some organic chemistry, then you might go and work for a, a big food company looking at the micron size in chocolate bars or how to incorporate more air in ice cream or something like that. This is the science of cooking. Oh, Harold wanted to write about the science of everyday life. And what's more everyday than cooking and eating. He doesn't, he's not eating in there, but it's, it's cooking. And there's no recipes, but he talks about, you know, why, for example, uh, if you're making bread, you want lots of gluten, so you make the, you make sure the flour is in, 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 in contact with the water and it stretches, so you want stretchy dough. If you're going to make shortbread, you want crumbly dough, so you have to protect the flour from the water because you don't want the gluten. So on beef, he basically said, Browning meat doesn't keep in the juices. Now, right. for me, that was like finding out Father Christmas wasn't real. But we all know he's real. It was a big, it was a big shock because everything I read and everything I'd seen on TV, any chef talking would say, seal in the juices. Searing the meat is different, but seal in the juices. So I thought this was probably one of the most biblical set in stone kitchen laws that existed. And there's Harold saying it's a load of nonsense. And then I thought about it. I thought, oh my God, what happens when you put a piece of steak in hot oil, in a really hot pan? What does it do? Sizzles. It sizzles. Well, oil doesn't sizzle. So when you, when you, if you put chips in a deep fat fryer, it sizzles. That's the water coming out of the oil. So if it was possible to seal in the juices by browning steak, it would be impossible to have a browned, well-done piece of steak because you'd seal in the juices. But no, it's really simple. 
Imagine steak as a, uh, is a lump of protein that's got about 70% or a bit less water content in it. It's hard to imagine a lump of steak having 70% water. Us humans are 70 to 90% yeah, water, you wouldn't, depending you wouldn't on how you measure us. No. So think about that piece of steak now as a wet sponge. And all that it's got holes and all the bits in between the holes, all the bits of the sponge are proteins. And as you heat proteins, they coagulate, they curl up. So think about eggs. You make a custard. If you cook the custard too much, you end up with scrambled egg. That's the proteins coiling up. They 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 like a like a they go like a cotton mob. They just coil up and contract. So if those if the bits of sponges are contracting, it's like you're squeezing the sponge. So you're squeezing the juices yeah. out. If you brown it or not, it doesn't make a difference. If you put a piece of meat, if you boil a piece of meat, if you keep boiling it, eventually you're going to get a very dry piece of meat. Doesn't you don't have to brown it. It's the same thing. The more you cook a piece of meat, the higher the temperature you cook it for longer, the more you squeeze the sponge, the more you force the juices out of the meat. Now, browning meat, however, is also incredibly important. Just because it doesn't keep the juices in, just because I'm saying browning meat doesn't keep in the juices, that doesn't mean to say don't brown meat. Because browning meat creates what they call a Maillard reaction, which is the most complex reaction that exists in cooking. It is when proteins and carbohydrates react to form new compounds, which these new compounds then go back to react with the, with the, new, with the proteins and carbohydrates to continually, it's called autocatalytic. They can come back and react to new, the new come back and react. They can, it's, really com, it's a really complex formula. It's the same as in roasting coffee beans, the Maillard reaction. We have Maillard reaction on our skin. You're having Maillard reactions right now. Everyone does. But it's only when they get over about 120 degrees centigrade, which is a bit too hot for us, our delicate skin, that they start generating new flavors. So the brown on, on the outside of a steak has so much flavor. It's like roasted green coffee beans, beans before and after roasting. It's the roasting process. It's a Maillard reaction. So you have wonderful flavor from it. It also develops a crust. And we want our meat to be, I think, Generally, or there's, there's, you, can, you can measure meat. There's three sort of key measurements. One is tenderness, one is juiciness, and one is flavor. Now, for juiciness, you have the juiciness that's inside the meat. So for me, I'd like to keep the moisture, as much moisture in the meat as possible. You also have the juiciness created by the crust. So you'll think, well, how... how does How a crust create juiciness? So the two main ways of creating, generating saliva or mouth watering, we call it mouth watering, is acidity. Just think about a lemon now. Just think about biting into a lemon. You can feel your mouth watering. Just thinking about I it. I can. That's so weird. <laughs> and chewing, chewing. And chewing gun companies have known this for years. Dear listeners, if you want a little fun experiment with your friends, take a piece of chewing gum. Chew it for a minute. Don't swallow. Don't swallow any saliva. You will be shocked at how much saliva you produce by chewing the gum. We just swallow it. I think we produce one or two litres of saliva a day. And we need to. It's very important. 
chewing generates saliva. So if you have the juiciness of the inside of the steak and a crust, nice crispy brown crust, which is really delicious and nutty, roasty flavour, you chew. But you chew the outside and then you get this wonderfully juicy in interior. So that that is really important. So my my that moment when I read about browning the meat, keeping and not keeping the juices, I thought, oh my God, it's so obvious now. Now Harold told me, it's so obvious. So then I thought, if that's not, if one of the most biblical kitchen laws is a load of nonsense, how many other things that I've read verbatim also are a load of nonsense? And that's on my coat of arms. My motto was a choice of Latin or English is question everything. And that's the moment when I woke up. I woke up with beef. I mean, it <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds interesting. Uh, and since then, get, I've so questioned everything. How did you everything. get around that then? How with, how with a steak then? Which way did knowing that, that that rule was wrong? How did you get around that? What did you do that you knew would be in contravention to those rules? Because that must have felt strange when you were doing it, right? Well, again, inspired by Harold, the way the, the the way to cook a steak for me is this is technique is brilliant, and it works with any sort of flat piece of meat, so a pork chop or a lamb chop. Um, you need the pan to be smoking hot, so you put the pan on the highest heat. Now, anyone concerned about high heat, if the oven, if the if the hob companies, if the heat goes up to nine and the pan companies sell metal pans, you can put the metal pan on number nine. Just don't put, this is very important, don't put the oil at the beginning. Leave the pan on the heat for five minutes or 10 minutes. It's, it's got to be smoking hot. Then have your steak ready. Keep it at room temperature, not fridge temperature. So you want, you want it to be an even room temperature. So you'll need to leave it out for several hours. It, this piece of steak, by the way, is sterile on the inside. It's sterile, so it's it's, and you're gonna you're you're going to obliterate the outside. The heat you're going to put on the outside is so strong. I mean, it's completely safe. So leave it, <coughs> just leave it out on a rack, so there's air around it. Come to room temperature. Then you can either put the oil in the pan. It depends on how flat your pan is, or make sure your steaks. If it's if it's sort of non-stick, heavy duty, you can oil the steaks. I'd season them uh, before, and I'll do it after. But if it wait, if you put oil in the pan, wait, be ready for the, with the steaks. Oil will be, when it's smoking, put the steaks in. But please, put them in. As you put them in the pan, make sure that your fingers, the the first part of the steak to hit the pan, <coughs> is the steak bit of steak, the steak, the end closest to you. So you're letting the steak drop away from you. So just in case, I've done it the other way around years ago, and you end up splashing burning oil on your fingers. It's not very, f it's not good fun. So just let it fall away from you. Then have some tongs ready and flip the steak every 15 seconds. 15, 20 max. Seems like a hassle, but actually it's not. It, and it cooks quicker. You have a wonderful crust. And what you're doing is like I talked about the rotisserie, you have a hot core, hot core. So when you, you the, you've got the steak touching the oil, frying, browning, you turn it over and then that gives it a chance to cool down a bit. So you're pulsing heat through the meat. So you're getting a lovely crust. But the old fashioned way, when you do two minutes each side, you end up, oh, you end up with a 
thick brown layer just to get a little bit of a pink layer. If you like your steak well done, well then it doesn't really, then this, it's not relevant. If you want your well done, if you want it well done. There was a very old kitchen, um, let's say less than um, lower quality kitchen technique that I'd heard about of chefs basically kneeling on, elbowing on, bashing the what's it out of the meat. It squeezes all the juices out. If somebody sent their steak back and they wanted it well done and the chef had a bit of an ego problem, some of them I heard <laughs> would just squash it and that would, that, would do, that would do it. And by the way, the juices that come out, a lot of people think it's blood. It's not. It's water. It's water with hemoglobin and other things in. It's not blood. The an all the blood is out of the animal. Uh, I always thought it was, actually. That's really interesting. I yeah, thought most very it's not. it was blood. <clears throat> Huh. It's it's not blood at all, but but it looks. People think it looks like it. Um, yeah. So that's that 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 technique is is fantastic, and the same on a barbecue. But once you cook it, if you want, ideally, invest in a good probe. There is a Heston <laughs> probe. A if you, you want, you should get that on a t-shirt. Well, I mean, there is a way. Okay, imagine this. Put, there is the classic way to tell if a meat is rare, medium, well done. Now, without without putting any pressure. Put your thumb and little finger together. Just touch them together. Thumb and little finger. Then at the base of your thumb, you see that sort of fatty, fleshy bit of skin on the on the on the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. Touch it. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. That's well done. If you put the go your forefinger, is rare. Oh wow, there's a big difference between the two, isn't there? Yeah. And then so the middle two are sort of medium. Guide. So if I just touch it when it's in there, if I touch it and, and go use those as a reference, that'll be pretty much <clears throat> right, it won't yeah. be that accurate, but it'll at least if you give you a bit more confidence. The ideal thing, invest in a good probe because because the, the, then you are, you just there's no point you don't have to it's like you don't have to know the square root of two hundred and thirty two when you've got a calculator. If you've got a probe you can then focus on other areas of the kitchen and know your steak is gonna be you know, don't invest in a beautiful piece of beef with a chance that you might you might cook it not to the way you would like it to be cooked. So when you're doing this flipping, let's say the piece of steak is roughly a couple of centimetres thick. You need enough thickness in there, but not too thick. When you take the meat out of the pan, it still needs resting. This is very important. Because what we also forget is when you apply energy to a thing, matter or mass, so steak or an egg, for example, you put high heat into a more dense object like steak or a boiled egg. When you take it out of that hot heat, it doesn't instantly get cold because you've got all that energy on the inside. So in steak, when you do that, the fibers, the muscle fibers, a bit like that sponge, imagine you squeeze the sponge from the inside, from the outside in, you need to let that meat relax on a rack, not on a plate, because if you put it on a plate, you sandwich the hot side against the plate. Just put it on a, a rack with air around it, leave it for five minutes. It will go up five degrees. So a more accurate way, if you have a probe, 45 is what the French call bleu or blue. 50 degrees centigrade is rare. 55 is medium rare. 60 is medium. 65 is medium well and 70 is well done and it will work every single time. So if you want it medium uh, medium rare, 55, take the steak out at 50. If you take it out when you think it's ready, it will over, it'll, it'll, it'll be more cooked than you want. Just yeah, take it out. You do do that, sit. don't you? You take it out when you think it's at the right point and then it, it'll just keep... So by the time it takes you to put it on your plate and actually before you eat it, it'll have evolved significantly over those yep. two or three minutes. And if you do ro roast beef... 
Let's say you've got a three rib ro roast or four rib roast. Firstly, this old fashioned way of how many minutes per pound is a load of twaddle. It's ridiculous because you could have um, you could have a piece of steak, a rib of beef weighing, um, I don't know, five pounds. But it could, it could be a, from a, the rib could be really tall, and which means it will have a certain thickness. Let's say it was from a smaller animal or smaller part of the rib, and the ribs are much shorter, mm. it will be thicker. So the minutes per pound don't work because the heat has got to penetrate a much thicker piece of beef. So yeah. it could be its weight could be it could be much higher but thinner or much shorter and fatter. So that doesn't work. Again, um, best in a in a probe. But if you're roasting traditionally, it's a I don't know 180 degrees, roughly something like that. Then you need to rest the meat to that rib for at least 40 45 minutes, at least, at least. Otherwise, what happens is when you cut it, all of that, all of the juices come out and you end up with a dry piece of meat. The difference is massive. And why people cook silver side or top side, I don't understand. It's like the worst of all worlds. Because meat, beef, <laughs> beef is, re is really, is really, meat is much more complicated. Um, people think that the son of good chef is the way they cook fish, but fish is really simple. Meat is much more complicated because you've got, it's not just meat. So you've got bone, you've got protein, so like lean meat, like lean, you've got lean meat or lean protein. You've got fat. You've got connective tissue. That connective tissue is the tough white stuff, which is called collagen. And you've got bone. Collagen comes from the more an animal has to work or the more the part of the animal has to work, the more collagen is developed. So in an ox tail, for example, that tail just doesn't stop moving. It doesn't stop moving. So there's more collagen in a shoulder there's more collagen. But in a fillet of beef, because it's held inside the rib cage, it doesn't actually go to the gym at all. So the more a cow moves around, the more exercise it does, the more co and the older it is, the more collagen is developed. So this then becomes tricky, because in order to make the collagen turn into gelatine, so if you imagine on a, on a you, we talked now let's talk about a micro level. Picture this collagen. You know those barber shops, the red and white spirals or coils. Mm -hmm. That's called a, a helix. There's a double helix because it's red and the white. The sign outside. The sign outside. Of the little tube, tubes. Yeah. I got it's you. A, yeah. It's a double helix. Well, collagen is a treble helix. It's a bit like a rope. So three, if you take three pieces of string and you twist it into a rope, it becomes much tougher, doesn't it? Yeah. So in order to turn that collagen into gelatine, each one of those three strands is, is, is gelatine. But they're together, twisted, they make collagen. So you've got to turn that, make, break that rope down, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the way to do that, it needs, either it needs a higher temperature and for a longer period of time. And what happens then is those, that triple helix falls apart into single strands of, 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 of gelatine. When it cools down, it wants to get back into its triple helix, but it's, it's got too much work to do to do that. It's too complicated. So what happens is they join together in threes, but all of them join together in threes, and you end up with a net. And that's how gelatine works. That's how gelatine sets jelly. Wow. I had it's no like idea. a little tiny net that holds everything together. 
So coming back to, to, to cooking, let's say oxtail, which oxtail is a good example because you can see all the white, it's got fat and those hard white lumps of collagen. But if you cook that really high, you end up drying out all the lean meat because that needs a much lower temperature. So years ago, I developed this uh, after an awful lot of trial and error. If you, I found out that 56 degrees centigrade is the lowest temperature possible to break, to, to, to kill an enzyme that stops the meat being tenderized. So if you cook it at 54, you won't kill off the enzyme. Cook it at 56, you get rid of that enzyme. So let's say 56 or 60 or 70, but the closer to 56, the longer you have to cook. So we went down to 56 and cooked also for 72 hours. It's, Lord. In, it's incredible. So all the collagen breaks down to gelatine. So you have this wonderful kind of rich, soft meatiness. Plus your lean protein is really juicy and, and it's still it's still got it's still sort of pinky. Um, if you're going to cook it at 70 or 80 or 90, then you reduce the cooking time. Now 56 is is a bit extreme, but just cook it lower for longer. Uh, and that's any braised meat, so shoulder, like shoulder of lamb, shoulder of pork, and, and those cuts of beef that need more, that just need, they've got more connective tissue. And it's really the part of the animal that's done the work. And that links into butchering, butchery techniques. The French, the English generally had, they looked at the animal and go, oh, I can't hear, I don't know why I'm putting an accent on. Oh, no, <laughs> I like <laughs> That was a London one, but they did have, they, they did, there was sort of the Sheffield cut, the Leeds cut, the Birmingham cut, the Manchester cut, all the cities had their own cuts of beef. But the French came along and they looked much more closely at the animal. What parts of the animal were doing more work? So you don't want to just, if you just cut, if you just butcher the animal and you've got a really, you've got a bit of fillet attached to a bit of meat with lots of connective tissue. If you cook the meat, if you cook the fillet nicely, then you won't be able to eat the connective tissue. If you cook the connective tissue, then you completely obliterated your, your fillet. Um, so they've broken, they've broken it down that way. After you've rested your steak, there's two things here. One, one I, I generally sort of slice the steak on a bit on a slightly diagonal because it's a bit chefy. And then, and, and then uh, if there's some juices in the pan that aren't too, that don't smell burnt, just a little bit, brush a bit of that over it, and then you can season the slices and then serve it. So that's what I was going to ask you. What, do you season your steak after cooking? I do. I, well, it, it's personal taste. You can put the, if you put peppercorns on before, the peppercorns can develop a different flavor because of the heat in the pan, but you might like that. I generally do a bit of salt before. Um, I think it helps the crust, but I'm not 100% sure. That's still on my list to uh, just to really sort of you know uh, better safe than sorry and then I'll season it afterwards if you've got a rib that the, the the benefit of a rib there's always a payoff generally in cooking the the beauty with a steak is that you get wonderful brown edges crust edges on 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 both sides but on a rib of beef obviously you get you can get the brown on all on the all, all the side, but then you carve it. Now, this is an important thing that another HB discovery, which I thought was real, really simple and eye opener. Put your arm out in front of you, your forearm horizontally. Now, you look at your arm. Imagine that as a leg of lamb. 
Where, which direction do the fibres run? Down towards my hand? Yeah, par- parallel with the bone. They're, they're running along, along your arm. Yeah. So, you imagine you're going you're gonna to cut that in a steak. When you slice the steak, you're cutting it more like slices along your arm. So what you're doing is now put your, put, your hand, put, put your hand in your mouth, your fingers in your mouth, and bite. Not hard. You're biting across the fibers. Now, if you put your hand up like this, so your fingers are pointing fingers up. Are pointing up, yeah. Now open your fingers. As you bite, you open your fingers. It's much yeah. more tender because you're not having to bite through. You're biting through the fibers, but this way, the fibers pull apart. They pull apart. So if you're doing a joint, so let's say there's a leg of lamb, we're talking beef, but it's quite good because you know, my arm looks more like a leg of lamb than a rib of beef. <laughs> um, uh, you slice down, you slice down to the bone, and then you cut those slices off, and then you turn, th- then when you eat them, you'll be biting onto the fibers. So the benefit of a rib of beef, when you carve a rib of beef, you're carving, a th- you're carving through the grain at 90 degrees, you're cutting through the grain. And then that piece of meat goes, falls on the plate and you eat it, you bite through the fibers. So you get the carving of a roast beef is, is actually more beneficial than a steak, but you don't get the browning that you get in the steak. We did uh, the food for Tim Peake when he went to the space station and it had to be tinned. So we had a real challenge. I remember you and I, we getting in that little plane and we had to go to Brittany. Which oh, is, God. oh my yeah. God, remember that. I never thought canning, we were so far away to go to a canning plant to make food for space. It's so canning process. And so I thought, this meat's going to be cooked at such a high temperature for such a long time. We've got to put some moisture back in. How are we going to do it? So we took the tendons. So think about the around the sort of back of your, your heel, the back of your leg, that tendon there. Tough. We pressure cooked the tendons so they were really gelatinous and juicy. And then we larded the beef with the tendons. So Tim could have a juicy beef stew up in the space station. I have to say, I ate that as well out of the can and it was insanely good. There's no way anything coming out of a can should have been as good as that. And that adventure we had, well, you had making that space food was ridiculous. But just seeing Tim up there when he opened that and ate that in his little dinner jacket was incredible because it Very really emotional. was. Yeah, it was really wonderful. And, and that... You know, talking from the ancient history of beef through to the modern beef up in space, it still has the same impact when done well. It it, it, it connects with us on a really deep level and it, it made a big difference yeah. to him. Yes, actually, that's a good point to, just, to, just to finish. The whole purpose of what we tried to do for Tim was the beauty of food being able to root and connect us into to, to, to our friends and family, to our, to our nostal- positive, warm, nostalgic memories, which really comes back to my original memories of beef and Sunday lunch at home and that smell in the kitchen. And on that, we shall leave everyone listening to run immediately and have a roast dinner because that's exactly what I want to do. Even in the middle of summer, I want to eat roast beef right now. This is incredible. Heston, that was a brilliant journey inside beef. Thank you ever so much. Uh, all that's left hey, to Jay. do is say, is say goodbye, Heston. Goodbye, Heston. Goodbye, Jay. And goodbye, all you wonderful listeners. <laughs>